Welcome to Desert Island Risks, the podcast where we talk to industry leaders and learn about the risks and rewards behind the success. Despite our name, we won't be playing any music during this podcast. We have instead chosen to talk to those people who are closest to our castaway, their friends and former colleagues. And this in itself creates a soundtrack to their career. Today we meet Keith Bressler, founder of Patron Capital. A native New Yorker, Keith has lived in London for the past 27 years. He began his career at Lehman Brothers before leaving to form Patron Capital in 1999, a risk that paid off. To date, Patron has raised 4 billion euros and remains one of the few independent platforms in Europe, continuing to raise capital and invest successfully in the region. Keith holds an MBA from the University of Chicago, a BSc from NYU, He's a guest lecturer at universities including Chicago Booth, Harvard and Imperial College London. A fervent philanthropist, Keith has responsibilities as chairman of the Prince's Teaching Institute, trustee for the Royal Marines Charity, raising over £3 million to date, and a senior patron of many other foundations. Too many to list here. Keith is an accomplished alpinist, mountaineer and skier, scaling over 22 summits around the globe. Indeed, I have a list here in front of me of his many climbing accomplishments. To the non-mountain climbers out there, the fact that he puts reaching Mount Everest Base Camp and the peak of Kilimanjaro in the easy column tells you something about our guest. Keith Breslar, welcome to Desert Island Risks. Thank you. So I think with an introduction like that, we must talk about your climbing. There are some lovely analogies between the challenges of climbing and those of building a business. Yeah, I think the attraction of climbing is sort of its analogy and, and how it really fits as a nice metaphor to to work and also to life is that, you know, if you think about a mountain, you have this big summit, it's pretty scary. It's hard to think about it. You don't really want to think about it on the climb. You break it down into a series of pitches, which are sort of individual rope bits until you get safe. If you actually think about it by each each pitch, it's a little bit easier. If you then think about each move within each pitch, it's even easier. So by sort of focusing on that micro early objectives, you really get to the big objective. It just comes as opposed to obsessing with kind of that giant goal. So that's really, you know, going back to the sort of question, to me, that's a great analogy of life, which is set your big goal, but don't worry about it all the time. Break it down to that mid-level and those smaller items, and then that leads with each little success that kind of takes you further down your path until you reach your main goal. So as part of this podcast, we speak to people who know you, who know and have watched you over the years. And we'll be playing some of those recordings during the podcast today. And on this subject of setting goals and breaking them down so that you achieve them, I'd like to play a recording from someone you didn't know we were speaking to, um, but I think knows you best of all. Let's hear from Lauren Bressler. <laughs> I think he excels so much because he sets goals, achievable goals, and he's always looking forward. He doesn't look back. He doesn't necessarily regret. I think he'll think if I have to make 10 decisions, I'm going to make them the best I can. Maybe three of them won't work, but I'm moving forward while I or other people might deliberate on all 10 and get nowhere. Very, you know what I mean? Like he moves forward. He's always moving forward. Thinking about the challenges, I'd like to play a recording from Poyu Zabludovich, 
the global investor, the founder of Tamari's group, the art collector, philanthropist, early supporter of patron capital. Here he is talking about you literally rising to the challenge. We had dinner and my late father-in-law is from Newcastle and was quite aware and was very taken by Cleet's skydiving. So he said to him about that uh, hill in Scotland, Sal, Sal, what is it called? Man of Who. Ah, yeah. And he said, why don't you climb that? And that's a rock outside the mainland. And then uh, half a year later, he calls my late father-in-law from the top of the hill and says, you remember, eight months ago you said to me to do that, I'm now here. Well, actually, the, the, the slightly funnier version of that story is a very nice man who unfortunately passed away, and that was the old man of Hoy in the Orkney Islands. Uh, but when I did climb it, the, the story about it all of it is I actually called him, and he wasn't there. I you know, had to leave a message on his voicemail until I actually got off the, off the, off the sea stack and called him back. So it was a really cool little adventure, um, and, and it was a real pleasure because, you know, this man, um, really, his name is Harry was really an incredible inspiration to me personally because he really is always a he was always had a very positive outlook although he had quite a few physical issues particularly with his walking and his legs and his kind of can do approach to me was really sort of inspirational to kind of how I like to lead my life so so it was more about the man and the character uh, in terms of the actual event and by the way Mr. Zabadovich Opoyu who's also a very very dear friend and it's funny you got him to speak uh, he really comes, his whole family is kind of the story of adversity, how Poyu himself kind of built this really major business uh, on the back of really a lot of, you know, historical pain and, and problems uh, and really built um, this, you know, fantastic company while at the same time giving back to the community, to his local community, to the wider community and really being an influence to so many people. And, you know, for that, you know, he remains like a really dear friend and so it's great that you got him. And his name is Zabludovich, which no one really could pronounce properly, but it's good enough. <laughs> we'll give it a go. There's a lot there around commitment and preparation, you know, being 100% committed. Have you always been like that? Well, that's a great question. I, I think I think you have to define sometimes what drives people. In other words, what drives you? Is it negative energy or sort of positive energy? And the way I see it is I would say in the earlier part of my life, it was really about negative energy in the sense that there was a, a lot of stuff I've been through, a lot of you know tough experiences in my own family and my own personal upbringing. Uh, and that kind of led me to drive to achieve more and work hard for that. Now, you know, it's much more about positive energy. You know, how do you get inspired by people around you? How do you continue to grow? How to evolve? I mean, I'm far from over and there's a long way to go. So how do you keep finding interesting people and interesting uh, events or environments to set higher and bigger and more important goals? And I think that is a... You know, I think about a sense of achievement. That's kind of how I see it. You know, that I got a long, long way to go, and this is kind of only the beginning of a, of a, of a long journey. Well, Poi, you on, on that point has something to say. Let's have a listen. He's a positive force. He's mm-hmm. uh, lovely to be with, charming to be with, fun to be with. In today's world, we always look, uh, look at the downside and everything. All the conversations are always on downside, what's wrong mm. with him, you don't hear that so much. You hear what's positive and what's achievable. That's um, ingrained in him from the start. He wants to get things done and, and positive people have a much better track record than negative people. So it's, uh, 
is one of the main examples of that. Positive people have a better track record than negative people. I suspect you subscribe to that. <laughs> you know, I think I think the trick is always to learn from your mistakes. I mean, I make mistakes, I've made, and I continue to make mistakes, and I've really made mistakes along the way. And the key is really to recognize them and, and kind of figure out what went wrong, what whether you've done anything specifically you could do better, and then kind of work on that. So I, you know, we're still evolving. The the group has. You know, if you look at going back to track record, if you look at it from a commercial perspective or a business perspective, you know, our business has really grown from strength to strength. You know, we've been operational 20 years. We have a phenomenal team. I think that's probably our competitive advantage is that we built this phenomenal, great team that really works hard. You know, and that has led to superior performance, which, thank God, is recognized by our investors. So, you know, I think the dynamic is, you know, not to ignore those things that go wrong or to be afraid of them, but rather to confront them to deal with them, you know, to learn from them and to kind of move forward. And, and that's what I try to do. So let's hear from some of the investors, because there's no doubt about it. Whilst there's a lot of regard out there for for you as an individual, for what you've done with with Patron, uh, there's also recognition that you're different and you take a different approach to things. And uh, we spoke to David Collette, who's Managing Director of Real Estate at Koust Investment Management, the Endowment Fund and an LP in Patron. There's a lot of good stories about Keith and himself when it comes to climbing or when it comes to his own agendas for getting healthy or even, <laughs> you know, the, the stories about him getting acclimated to go climb a high mountain and putting a, a tent on his bed, you know, an altitude pressure tent, I don't know what it's called, where he could actually eventually be, it would feel like he was sleeping at... 15,000 feet or something. So he really puts the envelope. So remiss of me not to ask your wife what she would have said to that. But um, that's talking of dedication and commitment, perhaps in a, in, a, in a different way. Did you actually do that? Yeah, I mean, the, sort of the quick background is that we set this idea to go climb Denali and, and I two of my mates who are, from, who are very professional, serious French guides that we're going to do it with. And my my, uh, I only knew I had about a week off. I really couldn't take longer than that. And, you know, it's kind of hard to do that when you live in London. So I, uh, I had this, I read about some crazy idea of renting a hypoxia tent and I brought it home. I put it around our bed and I convinced my wife to sleep in it for two weeks um, with me. Uh, and at the end of the two weeks, she basically told me if I don't remove it, she's going to kick my ass. But uh, short answer is it was, you know, it was good because I was able to go with my team who, who are live in Chamonix and live at high altitude to uh, kind of go from base camp up to the summit or pretty close to the summit in about five and a half or six days. So that was really the benefit of it all. I'm not sure I'd do it again, but it was kind of a neat experience uh, in terms of it. And I definitely recommend it to anybody who does work for a living and tries to do this stuff on the weekends. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, it kind of helped me out a lot. Is it that these things give you in such a high intense work environment, it's an ability to balance the intensity of that? Yeah, I mean, I could spend an enormous amount of time, 99.9% of the time on, on work and, and work-related projects and what we're worrying about on a daily basis and, and things like that. But this helps kind of, you know, the reason why I talk about it, we celebrate it a little bit, is it kind of creates that important balance uh, to put everything in perspective. I mean, we get into, you know, what we do with the military or some of the, you know, the support we I help or help. You know, that's that's much more important, frankly, than the climbing and the, and the skiing. That's kind of a nice thing. Um, but the you know the balance is crucial. Otherwise, any aspect of any anything you do could become overwhelming and frankly very difficult to deal with. You know the best way I've dealt with stress, good or bad, is to be able to compartmentalize 
you know, the different issues and, and kind of tackle them and then move on. Otherwise, you know, they eat each other and it gets very, very bad. It's very hard. So given your outdoor endeavours, you're clearly comfortable with, with risk. What risks have you encountered in, in, in business? Actually, it's a very interesting comment or opening. So interestingly, I'm actually very nervous skiing on piste. Why? Because, you know, skiing on piste with a lot of crazy people who aren't really trained and not very professional. Some people don't even have helmets, you know, and you're going very, very fast. You know, I don't I don't really believe in any of that. So, you know, to me, it's sort of much more about, for lack of a better term, controlled risk. And therefore, you know, the way I think about, you know, anything is, is to say, okay, what really is the balance of reward versus risk and whether that reward far is far superior for the relevant risk that one takes. And and that's why in our business model, we're trying to constantly identify sort of dislocations in the market. You know, and that word and that concept comes from the fact that the, you have sort of a stable situation and something goes awry, and maybe you can take advantage of that and, and, and earn superior return relative to the risk. So it's really not about taking unnecessary risks. Um, and in fact, all of our my climate I've ever done has always been with guides and all of our processes um, have been that way. And in fact, more importantly, perhaps, I've taken my children from a very young age on a lot of the adventures. So, you know, to me, it's more about understanding the parameters of what you're trying to achieve and then see whether you could achieve in that regard. And, and that's, from a business perspective, that's kind of how we lead our approach to, to risk and, and return. So it's measured risk. It's understanding the elements and it's preparing. Correct, correct. I mean, the reality is, is that there's always a sense of randomness that you can't really address and you have to, and that, that, that's something you just have to understand. Um, for a great example in today's environment, I mean, is the coronavirus going to be a serious risk to global health and global economies? And what does that mean to liquidity in real estate? And what does that mean to our tenant demand? And how do we think about that? And, and you know, it was interesting. I was in the U.S. last week or, or two weeks ago, and every day was a, a story about the impeachment trial and about Trump. But they seem to forget that 60 million people are on lockdown in China, right? So, you know, so I think the, I think you have a effectively tail risk, um, as been referred to by various people. Uh, and, you know, that tail risk is, is really, you can't prepare for it, perhaps. But what you can do is try to at least make your own business and your own organization, your team, you know, prepared uh, uh, with a lot of hard work and discipline for a lot of different eventualities. And hopefully, you know, that works. So speaking about risk, speaking about people, um, who took a risk on you? Well, I think I think a lot of people took risks on me. I think Alan Snoddy, when he was at the Church Pension Fund, one of our first investors, or Peter Lewis, who unfortunately passed away many years later, but when he was at MIT, you know, these are my earlier investors who really believed in in patron and in the business. Um, you know, and that was a you know really positive, great story in terms of setting the company up. I mean, when I joined Lehman Brothers, you know, uh, Sue Wagner and and he was my you know one of the first people who hired me into Lehman, or John Hopkins, who was my boss. Lehman Brothers, you know, these are individuals who were fantastic. And I think I would like to say throughout my life, I've always been fortunate that there's been at least one, if not two or three people who've taken that risk, who've taken that jump, that leap to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to let him go a little nuts. I'm going to let him try something that, you know, may not be obvious to the outside world that could work, but if he believes it, he'll probably pull it off. And, And that's been pretty consistent. I've had that in high school. I've had that in Thank God in college, I had in grad school. I mean, the fact that Chicago took me after college was a fantastic thing. I had that in my in my work at Lehman Brothers, and even now, with you know, with investors in very early funds. So currently, uh, in terms of what we're trying to do and and, and where we're trying to go, so um, I, you know, there's been a lot of mentors along the way who've been phenomenal in in kind of helping me in my own career and my own progression. 
Was there ever any doubt that you'd get into a good university? Well, yeah. I mean, I went to a really crappy high school <laughs> that actually had one massive advantage. It was, it was, it was at the time it was crappy. I'm not sure it was crappy now, but anyway, it was. It was Disclaimer. It was, it was connected. <laughs> you know, it was connected to a very good university. You know, good university that allowed me to take you know college classes while in high school, and you know that got me into NYU University and 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 so forth. But you know, back then didn't have any money. Um, parents were massively supportive emotionally, but we didn't have any money. So you know, it was it was great. For that first, that you know, the first, I would say the the person who took me to that school was amazing. Um, you know, whether it was through work study or grants or loans or you know how to work, you know, it was all really helpful. So you know, all along the way, each thing I've experienced turned out to be very, very helpful in progressing me forward, uh, as opposed to say a different track. So I, I'm you know quite comfortable with that track that I've been on. Let's hear from Alan Snoddy on who he thinks made the meaningful difference to you. You know, another thing which I think sort of speaks volumes about Keith is that really the first real institutional investor who recognized that there was something special was this guy, Peter Lewis, who at the time was at MIT and later worked at at Liberty Insurance. But Peter would tell the story about how he was going to London and one of his meetings canceled. And so he sort of dug through his trash can and pulled out oh, here's this patron capital offering memorandum. Let me call up and see if they have an hour to spend and talk to me just for you know FYI information. And so he had this meeting with Keith, and much like, as I described, within five minutes, he knew there was something special here. He really shaped this this organization because he really he understood, like, this is a partnership. This is not just me telling people what to do. And Keith learned a lot from that. And so Peter actually passed away. And, you know, Keith was in town for the funeral, was in the States, and you know, he sort of made the decision. So Keith in his office, when you walk in, I don't know if you've been there, but there's this wall of fame. So there's all of yeah. the, the transactions they've done, whatever. But if you look on that wall of fame, there's a picture of Peter Lewis. And he realized how important Peter was in establishing his firm. Peter took a huge risk on him. Well, I mean, it's great. First of all, it was Alan's, Alan's thought, by the way, a recommendation to do it, which I thought was fantastic. I mean, Peter was an incredible person. I mean, just to put it in real perspective, you know, we started out first as a team to kind of pursue investments in property. And, and the theory was once you build a pipeline, you could raise the money. Um, and along the journey, when we raised a bit of money, and Peter and Poe were, were supporters, um, and Alan, one of our real estate guys, um, one of the people in our team, left to go back to, you know, to where he came from. Uh, and there was a real question mark about, what would happen? So I really, when that happened, I flew to New York and called Peter up and I said, Peter, I'd like to see you. And we sat down, we talked about it. I told him my plan. I told him how I was dealing with it. Um, I, th- I told him what the future was going to look like. And, you know, he was massively supportive. And if it wasn't for Peter Lewis and, and MIT in that regard, you know, we never really would have gotten going. And then that followed by Alan. I mean, Alan was tremendous. Church Pension Fund was a massive uh, early supporter along with, you know, University of Michigan and and Tom Singh, over uh, who who used to create a new look, um, you know, these are very powerful parties to setting up patron back in 1999, 2000. For that, frankly, I'm, I'm forever grateful, and and whatever I could always do for them and their families, and and in the future, if I can, I'm very happy to help and do. I mean, that's what one should do. Starting the business, I have a picture of you, a secretary, and I hear a story about a plant, and that was that was it. I'm not sure the plant lived very long. Well, I think the, I suppose you want to tell that story. I so, do. Okay. <laughs> so, so, I mean, a little bit of the background there was, you know, my, 
my my mother my in you know here I am I grew up with nothing and you know my parents are really supportive and I went to work for the big Lehman Brothers and I had a great job and it was all fantastic and and I quit you know I go to quit to set up my own company and and really not my company I'm gonna go build a team and a, t- and a team of people gonna create this business. So I went to my, I was in my in-laws' house in Long Island, and you know I was walking with my father-in-law on Saturday to, to synagogue, and I said, you know, this is what my plan is. Do what do you think? And he was very nice, and he's always been very helpful and supportive, and he was like, okay, great, you know, that's fantastic. So I tell my mother-in-law, and she's a little bit more conservative and a little bit more protective, let's say, and she's a bit more nervous. And anyway, off we go, and I, I go back to London and set the business up, and I start working. And we had, we were in the basement office, thanks to a guy named Joey Fondi, who was incredibly helpful. And uh, my mother-in-law comes to visit us, and she realizes that we're in the basement. There's no windows. This is completely nuts. And all of a sudden, you know, her son-in-law that she thought was going to take care of her daughter for the rest of their lives, you know, might be looking at a bleak future. Uh, so she bought me a plant to make me feel better and to keep me company. And, uh, yeah, I don't know what ever happened to that plant, but she did get it to me. It did last for a while. You know, that worked out pretty well. <laughs> well, to the next topic, which is inspiration. And I'd uh, love to know what, what inspires you. I think if we kick off with uh, listening to Alan Snoddy and um, his thoughts on you and, uh, and motivation. It's the kind of thing where you think, okay, he spends 100% of his time on the business, but he also spends 100% of his time on these philanthropic endeavors and you sort of wonder how you can do it, but he manages to pull it off. But it's, it's really impressive and, and inspiring. You know, you can do it all for lack of a better expression that, you know, there's so many times when, you know, I think about, well, I don't know if I have time for that. And then I think about Keith and I'm like, how, you know, he does it. And, you know, yes, he's a force of nature. And, and it, it was always sort of amazing to be like back early on, you know, sometimes after a meeting in the evening, we'd go out and sort of probably the better scenario is that I would have a meeting the next morning with him. And the night before, we'd get together and have a drink and it would sort of end up with a bit too many drinks. And then I would really be struggling and get out of bed 15 minutes before the meeting and take a quick shower and hustle over there. And I realized Keith had run in from his home to the office, taken a shower, had already worked for two hours. And I'm just like, how do you do this? Wow. Okay. <laughs> well, how do I say it? So in high school, I used to get thrown out a lot. And there's a Yiddish expression it's called spilkis. It's a, it's a derogatory term, they used to say, which is, which is I had too much energy, energy whereas as they probably in America would say, I have ADHD and it would medicate you. Well, my mother never medicated me. And she kind of promoted me for to kind of focus the energy, let's say. So um, I kind of, I don't know, I don't really, I don't really f- find I've had anything genetically superior or better or qualities. I wasn't really born with much, um, but I do have the energy. I got that from probably my parents, um, and uh, I've tried to use that in a good way. And when I don't use it in a good way, it's it's, it's actually quite destructive. So you got to be really careful and focus it and kind of move forward. And uh, as Alan pointed out, you know, I'm never quite sure how to best do it, but we keep trying. Tell me about the copper pot. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, I don't know. It's a, it's a symbol that I, I kind of use to, to be the marker, right? So everyone has to have, a, I think, an anchor, or not necessarily an anchor, a marker in your life on what moves you forward. And I've told the story a lot to some of the young professionals about some of the challenges that they've had, which is that when I was you know younger and I was in high school, me and my dad and mom, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. My mother really actually ended up working for the, for the city and did, you know, did pretty well, but my father was struggled quite a bit. Um, and at one point, you know, the... Um, I was in my boarding school and the checks kept bouncing and 
the the cafeteria lady said, you know, you know, I'm really sorry, but you know, your dad owes you owe some money for food, and but don't worry, we're not going to tell anyone, and and it'll be our little secret. So so I was able to at least for a short period of time eat until we were able to get a bit of money. Um, but I went home that weekend, and I said to my father, I said, Dad, man, how bad is it? You know, you've been phenomenal as a father, and you've been always protective of me, and you know, I have no real sense of what's going on except for the fact that. We don't have what other people have, but frankly, this seems like it's really bad. Um, anyway, so he, he he pulled out a pot, and he said, well, I'm old enough now, and he, he had his copper pot, and the pot was filled with change, and he put it on the table. He dumped it out, counted out a bunch of money, gave it to me, took a little bit for himself. He said, uh, that's all I got. I said, what do you mean? I go, is there anything else? He goes, well, I got my Social Security, and don't worry, now I'll take care of us, and your mom works, which is good, um, and you know, I have a few deals in the cooker, and hopefully I'll come off and I'll pay off, but that's really what I have. And that was really a kind of a core turning point for me because it was a kind of that moment of maturity when you realize, you know, where you are, what you got to be and where you got and what do you if you want to achieve more or you want to get forward in life, you have to you have to drive forward. So it was actually a very positive event for me in a sense because it created that landmark point or that that clear turning point where from then on I said, okay, I got to go to work. I, you know, I have to set up whether I set up my own company or whether I work for people, I have to do whatever it takes to kind of drive forward and to take care and help if I want to lead a certain life, including taking care of my own parents and helping them out along the way as well, which which was very important to me. Let's talk traits and the traits that you admire in people. Um, well, I admire a lot of things in a lot of people, so it's kind of hard to, to break it down. But if I had to describe, you know, the kind of people that I resonate best with usually have like three characteristics. They have high energy, they're intellectually curious and, you know, they're reasonably bright. Um, you know, those are the three that I like and, and they manifest itself in different ways. So, you know, if someone's intellectually curious, they're always interested in, in learning new ideas, discussing new topics, discovering new thoughts. You know, that's an interesting experience to be with. You know, when I mean reasonably bright, it doesn't necessarily mean they're very, very smart, academically smart or, or so forth. It means that they're able to kind of be aware of who they are, where, what, what their role is in life, what they're trying to achieve you know, reflect on, on the good and the, you know, and, and, and some of the challenges that people go through and move forward. Um, and then the energy level, of course, is important because it's kind of difficult for a guy like me to be around someone who, who really isn't a high, you know, even moderate to high energy person. It just doesn't work. You know, my wife uh, says a lot that I'm exhausting, but actually she's quite the energetic one. I'm just the one who talks a lot about it. Um, and I think the, I think the, those three characteristics are really the kind of people I generally gravitate towards and I like being around, you know, because it makes me better. It makes me more, I learn more, which is more interesting. Let's move on to charity. You might have to help me out here with this word, but Tzedaka? Uh, Tzedaka. Tzedaka. The, the Hebrew word for philanthropy and charity. This seems to be woven into everything that you, you do. Tell me about your work, the time, the effort, the insight. How is it and why is it such a huge part of your life? Well, um, I was like, I was going to quote the Blues Brothers movie and say I'm on a mission from God. But, I mean, you know, in reality, it's kind of what it's about, right? I mean, I, you know, I got put on this earth for good reason. I got some characteristics that are positive. I probably got a bunch of negative ones. But to me, figuring out how to use the positive ones to do good is important. So, you know, from the really beginning part of my life or early stages of my working life, let's say, um, I, you know, had the opportunity to participate and be involved. And my mother and my father were really inspirational in, in, in that dynamic um, and helping people. 
Um, and they didn't have any money, but they helped with their time an enormous amount. Uh, and, you know, to me, that was really an important thing to do. And it's very, it's, in, it's exceptionally fulfilling. And those who kind of do it and, and help in philanthropy, however they do it, I think find it incredibly rewarding. It benefits society. Um, it changes the world. And it benefits you because you, you just simply feel better, you get better, and you get stronger from it. And so for me, it's really been an almost an addictive experience where I've done a lot of it and I enjoy it and I will keep doing it for the rest of my life. We spoke to Joe Pikus, a friend, a fellow New Yorker, a veteran of the food and catering business. Um, I think you two have known each other 36, 37 years. We asked him this question around you and, and charity and doing things for others. He always said his goal was to be wealthy so he can do things for others, as well as enjoy life, obviously, but he always liked doing things for others. It's in his DNA. He's always even when he had zero wealth, was always the guy who was looking to help other people. To me, it's, it's, uh, it's a gift, really, to have that. Well, I, he's an amazing guy, Yosef. So his, his, uh, he's a fantastic guy. So Pikus is a guy I grew up with uh, as 37 years. I mean, I met him. Just to give you a perspective on who you just had, I can't believe you put him on. Um, you know, Here's a guy who, whose brother was severely disabled, unfortunately just passed away, um, recently, about a week ago, uh, and was in, in a care home for many, many years. And I met uh, Joe, or Yossi, Yossi Pikus, in a camp for special kids and disabled children that we worked in for two summers. Uh, and I really got to see, you know, kind of the greatness of an individual. I mean, Pikus is the living embodiment of someone who's just a great human being and a great person. And he has been my dear friend for 37 years since I met him. Uh, and despite, you know, I don't see him all the time, but we speak every now and then, uh, he's just an incredible, incredible person. So he really, um, uh, uh, it, you know, it's funny that he get him to say that comment because he's really the guy who I've always looked to as being just this incredibly generous person um, and a really great gift of spirit. Well, there's something there, I think, about the community and the responsibility to, to give and to, to be involved. Um, he also made an interesting point linking your religion and the influence that that has had on you. Let's have a listen. If you look at the history of the Jews, where they've been expelled from so many countries over the years, where you come to a country that is, has freedom of religion, has freedom of speech, and the people who are guaranteeing that are people like the Royal Marines. Without them, you don't have that. And I think that's his way of saying, I appreciate what you do and what you keep on doing, someone has to acknowledge it. Whatever someone does for Keith, he will always acknowledge it. Yeah, I think, um, what can I say? I think the, you know, I found this incredible group of people that the general society kind of knew of them, heard of them, but they didn't really, I didn't really think they showed them enough respect and appreciation. And, you know, you sit there and, and you know, meet people like John White or Mark Amrod or, or, or Lee Spencer or Lee Waters. I mean, I can just do countless of individuals who I've met along the way who are, these are people who really just put themselves forward for country, for duty and for country. And um, regardless of, of the political views, um, you know, the military guys really are there to kind of defend our freedom and our way of life. So if I live in a country, which I think is a great country, which is England, and has done so much for the world, you know, you got to really respect and show appreciation to those who keep our society safe. 
and, and make it work. And I think that's a very, very important dynamic that gets lost on a lot of people. We just kind of assume all this stuff exists. You know, you pay your taxpayers' money and that's enough. Well, that's not enough. What's more important is sometimes the government can't really do what is necessary. Sometimes it can't necessarily show the appreciation. And it's amazing to me how the, how humble these individuals are and who I've who I've been, you know, been along the way and in that journey. And it's been a phenomenal, it's been about a little bit under 10 years. I've been directly working with the Corps and it's been great. Um, and it's a little bit of an influence my own dad who were, went to a, who went to a school called Norwich University, which is a military college. And he was always a big supporter of veterans. And, and while I did a lot for the IDF, which is the Israeli Defense Force, and I said to myself, you know, I've been in England for 20, at that time, for about 15, 16 years. And no one in my company or people who I know really understand the sacrifices that the armed forces of Britain have done. And I think it's important to recognize that, which is why I'm really passionate about it. And I think it's, you know, if I could help, great. Um, and if I could get other people to help, even better. So that's kind of one of my core aspects I happen to like about it. Well, look, you met, you mentioned Lee Spencer. Uh, Lee is a single leg amputee who became the first physically disabled person to have rode solo across the Atlantic whilst breaking the previous able-bodied record by over a month, gaining two world records. It's a remarkable achievement. And Lee spoke to us, and Lee talks about how you took a risk on him and also some of the support you've given to the Marines. Let's have a listen. Keith is a, he's a massive supporter of the War Marines charity and he's done loads to, to help um, on a personal level. Keith was a big sponsor of my row and was really instrumental in ensuring that I was able to get the finances together to to put the row together and actually put the boat in the water. Um, but unfortunately, I, I never managed to get Keith in the boat uh, rowing about. <laughs> actually, no one, well, not many people thought that, firstly, that it, it was possible for a disabled person to row solo from mainland Europe to mainland South America, let alone beat the able-bodied record, which is what I set out to do. But I always got, certainly got the feeling that Keith believed in me from the start and believed that I could do it. Yeah, I was always encouraged whenever I spoke to Keith because I, I really got that sense of um, not just support, but belief behind it. If I'm ever in London and I get a chance, I always like to pop up and, and say hello and see Keith. I love seeing I've got my uh, my rowing leg, leg I rowed across the Atlantic with this high up on the wall in his office, which is always quite funny to see. <laughs> yeah, so we actually, for those who don't understand what that is, that's funny. We actually have his leg uh, hanging in our office on our wall, you know, the wall which has all the stuff that the team has done and the people have done and... We have his leg, which has a Union Jack on it. I mean, Lee's a, Lee's a great example. I mean, the guy is the most humble person, one of the most humble people you'll ever meet, right? I mean, he 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 first he rode, I think it was called the Limbless. He rode with three other people who were all missing legs across the Atlantic. Then he kind of got bored with that one, so he said, let's do another challenge, and he rode on his own. Um, and the funny part is I asked him to send me a picture so I could at least send it to, we're trying to get all the people we work with to support the Marines and support the charities we're involved in. So I want to send a picture of, you know, Lee, rowing across the Atlantic to, to some of our other groups and sponsors and friends. Anyway, send me a picture of him naked cleaning up the barnacles underneath the boat. I'm like, dude, you can't send me that picture. It's not going to work. You need, I need a better photo. So he ended up taking a nice picture, which is actually on our brochure. So 
You know, I think he, you know, he's just one of many. I mean, he's just an unbelievable person. But there's so many people in the, in the, really in 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 the Royal Marines and the Combined Services that have been unbelievably incredible. We we took 57 disabled British veterans, um, and 100 members of their family to Israel last year for the Veteran Games, where they did mornings of sports, in the afternoon of touring, and we combined it with a mental health conference. You know, dealing with veterans' mental health and PTSD and those challenges. And I, you know, in that experience, I met so many other amazing people. That, that were just fantastic and, and really had their own stories and each in their own way. And, and I think the fact that we were able to show appreciation for these individuals and their families, you know, their, their support, you know, listen, their wives and their husbands are, are big supporters of all this, is powerful. And, and that has been incredibly powerful to me. It's been powerful to anybody I've told about it. Um, and it's incredibly inspirational. So the, you know, to me, that, that's a, a, a small, small, tiny thing that we could do to, to show support. You know, my dad was virtually blind. You know, he couldn't drive a car. He was blind in one eye, the other eye was half out. I never knew what disability really meant. You know, to me, it was kind of a, it wasn't really an obstacle. It was a challenge that you figure out and you move forward with. And I think that's really, you know, these guys and and the men and the women of the armed services who have served uh, and have done so much for for country um, really deserve that respect because they... You know, to the extent they do have their own challenges, you know, giving them that support, whether it's emotional, whether it's financial, or just time, um, is very, very powerful. So my team has been fantastic in really joining me in that effort, whether it's the Royal Marines or stuff that we do for the teachers. You know, state school teaching in this country is, is really unloved. You know, Teach First has done a phenomenal job on bringing new teachers to the system. I'm sorry for going off on the teacher bit. But, you know, here here are, you know, if you're a 20-year veteran and you're in, you know, somewhere in the country, in the Midlands, You've had a tough job because you have no resources, but you still want to kind of deliver great teaching. You know, the PTI, which is I'm involved in, really helps kind of deliver that passion or help reinvigorate that passion amongst teachers. And when you have 1,400 teachers a year in your program and you have a half a million kids affected every year, you know, that's a big, big story. That's a big multiplier effect on society. And I think that's something that, that we need to be thinking about always in terms of helping improve this kind of great economic divide, which is what we're dealing with today, you know, in our world. I've heard you say before, there is no such thing as an unsurmountable obstacle. It is all nonsense. There are just challenges. The trick is how to overcome those challenges. So look, let's let's look forward. Let's look to the future. What's next for you? Well, you know, I don't, it's going back to my big objective and short objectives. I mean, I think, you know, really important is continuing to build the patron business. I mean, my my lovely wife made a very interesting comment to me a, a while back, and she said, you know, is Patron a multi-generational business? Is it built to outlive you? Is it built to support and grow and be a great platform for juniors to grow their own businesses and to take advantage of all the opportunities that will continue to happen and exist? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think my primary focus is really on building that story and how do we continue to turn the business into that more multi-generational platform? Um, and that's why I spend a lot of time really thinking about and working and whether that's great investments and, and great performance, which is priority, it's number one priority, to you know great transparency and great relationship with, with your clients and your partners, um, to other things that we could do within the team to help kind of grow the team and make sure that people feel like they're part of a big story that, that will continue to grow. And where would you like to see the industry going? Um, it's a great first question is what is the industry? You know, which industry are you referring to? You know, I, I think I have two jobs in a sense that we have a investment job, which is a property related investing business. Um, but we also have a money business, which is, in, you know, raising and investing our, our money and our clients money. So, you know, in terms of the latter, let's say, 
I think we have a very interesting situation where we have this enormous amount of savings that exists for a variety of reasons in the world and how that wealth and how that savings gets deployed um, where the, their ultimate beneficiary is protected uh, and continues to, to benefit is, is really crucial. So where do I see it going? You know, I think a lot of people talk about consolidation. I just think there's going to be a lot of ebbs and flows. I think there's going to be uh, a series of large consolidating stories that will, of course, continue to happen. I think technology is really transforming large parts of the industry in terms of costs, in terms of reporting, in terms of processes. But at the same time, you know, we're dealing with ever-increasing regulation, and how do you deal with that? And that's all being done within the backdrop of a political or an economic environment where you still have this even greater economic divide between the haves and the have-nots. And I think that manifests itself through populism, through various regulations, and through potential taxation, which will impact how we think about our investment profile and the environment we work in. And you mentioned this point around consolidation and, of course, Patreon being one of the few independents. Can you see a future where the independence can continue? Will Patron continue to be an independent? I, I think it's an excellent question. I, you know, I think the, the the crucial dynamic of Patron, which is not, if not been obvious by all the questions so far, is our culture, right? So our we have a very strong team culture, a very strong set of ethos in terms of what we're trying to achieve, and that's really important to keep. So if we could preserve that and grow, you know, that's great. You know, where where is that in terms of the 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 our growth or that pattern in terms of what's been happening, you know, what we don't want it, you know, I'm not really interested in selling out to raise a bunch of money and what, you know, what, what's going to happen next? You know, I, you know, I, I see the culture part as a very important dynamic of our business. And, and therefore, to me, the, the bigger question is how do we use our existing assets? How do we use our platform for growth? How do we access more? How do we learn more? How do we do better um, for our investors and, and do more better for our team? And that kind of question is really the question. It's it's not necessarily how am I personally going to get richer or how maybe two or three other partners in a company might do better or worse. It's really about how do we transition into that wider, longer-term story. And that's what's more appealing to me as a goal. And preserving the cultures is crucial. Mm. One of the people we spoke to for this podcast actually told us that your worst nightmare would be retiring on a beach in Florida. So given (laughs) our namesake, we're sorry to say that we are actually marooning you on a desert island. Um, So as a real estate investor, when when you leave this island, where are you going to go? What are you going to do? Well, I, I think the challenge of all investing, of course, is it's it's really hard to figure out how the environment will turn out over the longer term, let's say. Um, and therefore, what I try to do or or work on is is get good tailwinds. You know, I think I think people underestimate the the importance of of improving employment in economies and society. You know, you have a, a situation now in in England and and really you see more importantly perhaps in Spain and to some degree in Portugal and in Ireland where there's enormous growth stories because people have work, they have jobs, they're working. And, and when they people work, they feel better and they'll spend money, hopefully, and they'll invest in their homes. And uh, and that will help power an economy. So I'm, I'm a big, big fan of in terms of where I go to kind of growth stories or growth markets, which at the same time have a degree of understanding, respect of the rule of law, respect of the rule of capital. Uh, and from that perspective, you know, I would say, to me, Western Europe remains very attractive, and particularly the growth stories in Western Europe remain very attractive. And identifying, sometimes not in obvious places, where, where things could be really exciting and interesting. 
And and that it really is is kind of how I think about it, which is that growth market is where we like to go. Are there specific plane tickets you'll be booking for where you're going to go? Well, we already have them. So, <laughs> so I would say, you know, if I identify growth, it'd be Spain, Portugal, and Ireland. If I identify the kind of the big unknown, which I think might turn out to be a positive surprise, it'd be significant pockets in the UK. You know, the other other markets are also very interesting, but they're a little harder to figure out. You know, they're harder. It's kind of harder to figure out parts of France. It's harder to figure out uh, Italy, which remains the enigma, if that's a good word for for the Italian market. Uh, uh, so, you know, to me, it's really we're we're looking to the growth stories as as a continued important part of our our market support, of course, by a base, which is what we've been doing in the UK. And if it's not work related, where are you going to go when you leave this island? Well, I had the I had this incredible benefit last Friday night of being with my daughters uh, at dinner. Uh, I I think I think if I could figure out a way to engineer being closer to my family and doing something with them in the longer term, that's a kind of a pretty good goal. I, I made my daughter swear that they wouldn't put me in a home, and let me. I told them they have to let me dribble by their table. I, I hope I hope that's the story, and I'm, I'm hopefully this te- podcast will be recorded for memory. And they know it as a testimony or testament. Well, it's funny you say that and you you talk about them because I did wonder what it was like being a child of Keith Breslauer with all the drive and ambition. So oh, don't you tell me don't you, got one of my, this, you didn't get we, one of my kids. Oh, great. Kids. <laughs> oh, the, the, the good news is that uh, they're not going to put you in the home anytime soon. Let's okay. have a listen. So like me and my dad did Kilimanjaro when I was younger and I was about 13. And it's funny because, like, I'm, like, kind of the guinea pig to see, because I'm the oldest, to see, like, okay, like, what's the appetite for adventure? And then now every other of my siblings has done something more insane than that. So, like, my next sister did ever face camp. Then the sister after that, she did this, like, crazy climb in France. It doesn't have the same, like, name, but it's, like, an actual climb as opposed to a hike. And it was just, like, she's an incredible climber. So, like, every, she, like, continually sets the bar higher for us and my siblings but I never found it to be too pressurizing I don't know how he strikes the balance between like setting goals and and setting high expectations for us but also not putting too much pressure I'm not sure how how that balance pays off but I didn't feel growing up that like he was the one putting pressure on me I felt it in school but not not for my dad well, that's pretty scary. <laughs> well, the short answer, I want to be around my kids. I, I think there's a, I try to teach my children, or at least try to tell them that, you know, we're, we're given a gift, right? We're given a gift by God to be alive. We're given a gift to have ability and capability to be great. Um, don't waste a gift, right? Try to drive forward. Try to, you know, do that. Now, sometimes it's not obvious. So put yourself in experiences that will kind of help grow. You'll be able to help grow. And And all my, thank God all my kids have, done that and made me unbelievably proud and and um it's been fantastic so if i say what's my goal when i come off the island i like to hang out with my kids i think they're pretty impressive and and they continue to drive me now to do more stuff or to figure out better how to do things better and that journey remains kind of a great positive cycle hopefully will continue for many years to come let's close with a quote from the yoda legendary jedi master (laughs) do or do not there is no try well, that's how I try to raise my children. <laughs> so, yeah. Keith Bresler, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Desert Island Risks is brought to you by Bohill Partners, the leading executive search firm in the private markets industry. For more information on this podcast or Bohill Partners, 
feel free to visit our website at www.bowhillpartners.com or our Instagram page at Desert Island Risks.